chapter 12, and as you're turning there, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we pray, Lord, that this time that we've set aside for you would be fruitful. I pray, Lord, against all confusion, but that only understanding and clarity would reign here. We pray that your words would be spoken, that somehow your ideas would come through this, and that the seed of the word would be planted in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, anytime you turn to the book of Revelation, it should probably come across our mind just what we're turning to. The title of the book, Revelation, of course, comes from the word reveal, to pull back, to get an understanding. We have something common in our culture today where we have a gender reveal with babies, where parents like to announce if it's a boy or a girl. So at that moment, right at the last second, something is brought forth, it's known. It is revealed that it's the, the pregnancy is going to have a baby, or excuse me, a boy or a girl. So in Revelation, this entire book is about revealing who Jesus is to the world. Now there's a lot of things that, uh, phrases that occur in the book of Revelation that seem confusing, that we may not know what they mean right off the bat, but they are explained somewhere else in the Bible, all of them. But keep in mind that the reason we go there, the reason, uh, things that we'll pull out of the book of Revelation is a clearer picture to the whole world of who Jesus is. That's actually the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, if you have a subheading in your Bible, it may say something like, A Woman Gives Birth to a Son. And the title of tonight is, Woman versus the dragon. Verse 1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven. This is obviously John is, re- is seeing in a dream or a vision. He has not been transported somewhere to view what took place. God is just showing him in his mind's eye an image of something that took place somewhere. There appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now right there, right off the bat, there's almost nothing that's just immediately clear, is it? But it does give us an image of something, and this image is explained in the Bible. We're going to go to it in just a second, but let's read a few more verses. The challenge we have tonight is, where do you stop in all these verses to go back and explain it without getting too gobbled of, turning too many pages back and forth. We're going to read about four verses, and then we'll try to go explain all this. Verse 2. She, whatever that woman is, was, whoever she is, she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. So the woman described in verse 1, with the sun and the moon, and twelve stars, she is with child, and she's travailing to give birth. There's a lot of different images of women in the Bible. Number one, the church in the New Testament is described as a woman. But what kind of a woman? What image is that woman in the New Testament of the church? The bride. And as a bride, is she pregnant? No. She is always presented as, quote, a chaste virgin. So we can throw, we can eliminate a couple of different ideas right off the bat here. This is not talking about the church, this woman. 
The New Testament does describe us, the church, all of us put together as a woman, as the bride of Christ. Even in the book of Revelation, it does talk about that. But this woman is different. She is pregnant and she is travailing. The Bible is going out of its way to describe this woman as she's pregnant and she's going to give birth sometime and she's in pain. Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, of course, in the Bible, when we hear the word dragon, there's not too many directions to go with that. And if you jump down to verse 8, it says that the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So we know who he is. When you get to verse uh, 9, it describes exactly that red dragon is Satan. So we can identify who we're talking about in verse 3 and 4. And in verse 4 at the end, it says that the dragon stood in front or before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And this is where we kind of get the title of this, the woman versus the dragon. Because throughout this chapter 12, there's those two images, those two persons, the woman and the dragon. And right away you see that this dragon is hanging around the woman for what reason? It's it's a gruesome image, but it's true. The dragon knows this woman is pregnant. And he, you know, uh, you can see this in nature. When an elk, a female elk is going to give birth, she's not the fleetest of foot. They don't outrun wolves at that time. And if they haven't found a quiet, lonely place, they're in trouble. And this image here is, the dragon knows she's going to give birth sometime, and it paints the picture. He can't wait for that child to be born so that he can destroy the child. Well, we've introduced enough about these two that we're going to go back and look. But before we do, let's read verse 5. She did bring forth this child. She brought forth a man-child. It even gives us a little more information here. It is a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. By the time we're done tonight, we'll see that chapter 12 covers an enormous period of time. This is not talking about, say, the Virgin Mary, who lived on this earth, let's say, 70 years. That period of time, she would have only been pregnant a very short amount of time. Her birth would have happened quickly. The... the, the dragon would have either gotten that child or not, but it's not even talking specifically about just one person, the, uh, the Virgin Mary. In effect, she's going to be part of this. But what we see here, the, the dragon is waiting to get this man-child. So let's now go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, because this is really where this whole thing starts. All the way back... To Genesis chapter 3. And this, of course, is a story in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sin. And when you get to verse 14, 
God has a little conference. He now has Adam, Eve, and the serpent standing in front of him. And remember, those three were the ones involved with the fruit off the tree. The serpent was the one that lied to Eve, that deceived her, that in the end got her to eat of this. So God has those three. The serpent, Adam, and Eve. And the Lord said in verse 14, He said unto the serpent... The next two verses, he's talking to the serpent. Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And he's continued to talk to him. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Very similar to what we read in Revelation. There is the serpent. And in talking to the serpent, he says he's going to put an enmity, that's a disagreement, a conflict, a natural warring between, and it's kind of funny, he leaves out Adam for a moment. He's specifically talking to the serpent and Eve, and he said, I'm going to put enmity or conflict between you the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. So this is going to last for generations. Seed, of course, means giving birth to offspring. So what Satan, or excuse me, what God is telling them, and the person who hears this with the most clarity probably, because it has the most effect on, is the serpent. See, someday Eve is going to leave this earth. She's going to pass away, go the way of all the earth, and her seed will still be here. But see, the serpent, he's going to be here through all of this through all the lineage that comes from her. And what God is saying, verse 15, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now that paints an image. One of them gets hurt on the heel, and one of them gets hurt on the head. And if you were, say, in a a prisoner of war camp somewhere, and the commandant comes and gives you a choice, you can take a bruise on the head or a bruise on the heel. You'd probably choose the bruise on the heel. Because the bruise on the head, you got a lot more valuable things up there. One good knock there and the heel doesn't matter, you die. So in this image, God is telling the serpent, someday something is coming from the woman. That's what the seed means. Something's going to come from her. And what's it going to do to him? He's in trouble. It's going to crush him in the head. Now he gives a a little bit of an illusion that when that happens, that the woman's seed does get pained, doesn't he? Mind already thinking down the road to Jesus? He does get hurt. But in the big picture, who gets crushed? The serpent. And that's what this is talking about from this moment, from verse 15 up until this day. Satan has been after the seed of that woman. Why? He took God at his word. He knows. Something someday is coming from her, and he's coming after me. What's the next story in your Bible? Cain kills Abel. Who are Cain and Abel? This is the seed of the woman. Eve had these two sons. 
And there's nothing in the Bible that says Satan got into Cain and did this because of what took place in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman was going to get him, and he made up his mind he was going to go after the seed. It doesn't say that. But when you step back and you start to read from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation, a picture starts to emerge that Satan, from that verse on, is desperately trying to do what? Kill all Germans? To destroy the Czechs? The Brazilians? He, there's, a, there's a problem. He knows that God has identified a specific lineage that one day something's going to come out of that lineage and crush him. And you can start to see from the beginning of the Bible, that's the story of the Old Testament. Have you, have you ever wondered why it really doesn't talk a whole lot about Russians? Or a whole lot about Ethiopians or South Africans? Certainly not Americans. Chinese, Japanese? We don't even get a mention. Because the story of God is He made a promise to the world. And to those three to start with, the serpent, Eve, and Adam. Someday something's coming from the woman. And throughout the generations, as you start turning pages, God starts narrowing down that lineage because, hey, after a thousand years, you know how many different directions that lineage could go? People, it could go in a million different directions. But you get to Genesis 12, and what does God tell us? He calls out Abraham and says, I'm going to start something with you, that the whole world is going to be blessed through you. Satan knows. It's this guy. Satan, or excuse me, Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac. And what does God do? He identifies Isaac. To the point where he says, my promise is with Isaac. Even though you like Ishmael and God, God likes Ishmael, but the promise wasn't for him. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And what's that whole story about? The idea that Jacob got the promise. And we, that's why from that point on, Esau's line goes one way, and we hear almost zero. There's a little bit, but almost zero about Esau's lineage. Is it because God hates Esau? No. It's simply because he wants the whole world, every reader of this book, to identify one person on the planet, Jesus. And he would come through one line. So God keeps identifying and narrowing it down. You go all the way even when they go into Egypt and there's, they grow to be a, a large nation under slavery. And when they come out of it and Moses brings them out, what does God do when you get to these people about Obed and Jesse and David? He starts telling the whole world, there will be somebody from the line of David that will sit on this throne forever. So what does Satan know? He doesn't have to worry about David's brothers, David's cousins, David's neighbors. He knows it's coming through this line. This whole story of the Old Testament is, basically, the devil trying to destroy this lineage. So, for what purpose? Self-preservation. He knows someday something is coming out of that. This is going to crush me. And in the Trying to get ahead of the curve starts right away. Cain kills Abel. And then God replaces Abel and has Seth. Well, this thing just keeps going down the line. You could read things like uh, when Jacob 
is in Canaan and his son Joseph is in Egypt? Why do the sons of Jacob go down into Egypt to get corn? There's a famine. The Bible doesn't say, and I'm not drawing a line in the sand to say that Satan is trying to kill them off with the famine, but it sure fits the mold. There was a famine in Abraham's time and in Isaac's time. Everything is designed to choke this line off. Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. They're in Egypt. They're multiplying in Egypt. And Joseph has died. And now the Pharaoh that loved Joseph, that put Joseph in charge, he's gone, Joseph is gone, and so the Israelites in Egypt are now being made slaves. They're being tyrannized. They're put in bondage. And in verse 14, the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar, brick, all manner of service. Verse 15, the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name was somebody, and he said in verse 16, When you do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, she shall live. The next part of the story, the Hebrew midwives, they realize, well, God doesn't want us to do that. They trust God, they fear God more than they fear Pharaoh, and they don't kill those kids. Pharaoh realizes it's not happening. He then tells them, I want all the male children just thrown into the Nile. Drown them. And what's this a picture of again? It specifically said the male children. Remember what we read in Revelation 12. That dragon standing before the woman ready to devour her for the man-child that was to come. See, he knows. See, when we get to Revelation, I should have said this in the beginning, we're basically, we started in Revelation 12 at the very end of the story. And that's a summary of all of human history. We're just now going back to the beginning of human history to see, does this really make sense? Is this really what Revelation 12 is talking about? So here in Exodus... They're killing all the male children. And this is a theme. They're trying to kill them. And of course, we know how this story goes. The mother of Moses has this little baby boy. She realizes that they're not getting this kid. I love him. He's precious. And she saves him by putting him in a little ark, a little boat that she makes, puts it in the river. Pharaoh's daughter sees it, falls in love, takes this kid and raises him in Pharaoh's court. And God uses that to raise up a deliverer, Moses. He would one day come back here and lead these people all out. And let's turn now to Exodus chapter 14. When Moses is now an older man, and he is leading them after the ten plagues, he is leading them out of Egypt, and it says in verse 17, and I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptian, and they shall follow them. Follow them where? Into the Red Sea. The Israelites have left Egypt. They're up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh and his army are chasing them down. Now, in this chapter, you get this close to Satan doing exactly what Revelation 12 says he wants to do, to destroy the woman and her seed. He's got them all. 
All of those Hebrews are this close up against the sea. They don't have chariots. They don't have spears. They don't have even hammers to throw at the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are closing in. They're going to kill every single one. God says here, I'm hardening their heart to make sure that they are so angry, they come after you. How'd you like to have God tell you that much? I'm going to make sure your enemies hate your guts so much that they never give in. Thank you, sir. But he doesn't stop talking there. Verse 18, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. This pillar of cloud was leading them. When they get to the ocean, it stops. This thing goes behind them to separate the Egyptians from the Israelites. And the Bible says in the next two verses that the Egyptians see this pillar as a cloud, like a tornado, and on the other side, the Israelite side, they see it as a bright light, a light that gives them light through the night to pass through the bottom of the Red Sea. We all know how this story ends. They chase those Israelites through there, and what happens? God is pretty good at this. He turned the tables 180 degrees. And before that day was over, every single Egyptian that came after them, the Bible says, was dead on the seashore. What Satan meant, God totally turned around, and he gets bopped over the head every time he gets this close. And it's the story of the Old Testament. Think with me to the book of Esther. See, we, if we had the time, we would just open up to the concordance. Have one person in the front row concordance and you throw out a, a book of the Bible and we'll go there and read how Satan almost, or at least is trying to kill Israel. And there's a story in those books that tell us God delivers them and preserves them at least until when? To make sure that that seed gets here. See, the book, the whole New Testament opens up with what? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah, and Pharaoh, and it goes all the way down. He traces the lineage to prove where it came from. Exactly what he said in Genesis 3.15. Someday... Something is coming from this woman and he's going to crush your head. And the whole story of the Old Testament, if you ever just step back and looked at the big picture, is God preserving his word to those people, even though they turned their back on God in almost every book, in every page. They may have cursed him. They may have stuck their finger in his eye by worshiping idols and other gods. So why did God stick with them? Because of a promise and a word that he had given to mankind. It it was never about their goodness. Ever. It was only because he had told the world, I I chose something pretty small, kind of weird, this one group of people, and I'm going to get my son here that way. And it's almost like he has fun showing the world that he can use the smallest to make the biggest point. So Jesus gets here. He gets here 
And then what happens? Well, we're going to skip through because, you know, there is, did we mention it? There's, say, the book of Esther is another good example. On our way to the New Testament, the book of Esther is about, in the Persian times, the, uh, there was a man kind of high up in the government who had set a plot, a trap, to try to kill every Jewish person. And God had this young girl who had been made queen in that time, and she takes her life into her own hands and asks the king for a favor. And that story is a little bit long and a little involved, but what happens is that little Jewish girl ends up saving. God does the saving. This girl is the instrument. She gets the king to reverse the order. And instead of all the Jews dying, because every one of them were slated, all of them, and it doesn't mean much to you unless you understand a little history, the Persians ruled everything back then. The known world. They were very strong. And when that king, if he had given the order, they would have all died. Instead, the man, Haman, who was trying to kill all the Jews, he and his family, even the people related to him, went to the hangman's noose. They came this close, and at the last minute of the last day, God turns it around, and Satan, once again, gets another black eye. That's the story of the Old Testament. You can think of that even through things like David standing before that Philistine. You know what Goliath was promising to Israel when he stood out there and he spoke and he cursed him? It wasn't that, well, we're going to play chess or checkers and, and then whoever wins, the other guy has to do push-ups. It was promising slaughter. And when God was on the side of this young teenage boy, David, who goes out there with a sling, God reversed that thing like that. And you know what happens at the end of that day? The Israelites chase those Philistines to their slaughter. It's the story of the Old Testament. God preserving his people so that they can bring forth just what we read in Revelation 12. She's pregnant. This woman is the nation of Israel. Sometimes when you first hear that, you think, it's a little strange. How can a whole nation be a woman? But the Bible's kind of clear on this. Uh, if you have your finger in Revelation 12, let's go back there. To put a couple of nails in this, to really nail this down. Verse 1, it describes this woman how? There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with, and here's what she's clothed with, the sun, the moon, and under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So, sun, moon, 12 stars. We already know that the number 12, we always associate that with those 12 tribes. But is that accurate here? Back in Genesis 37. Genesis Chapter 37 is the story of Joseph. Joseph is the, one of the younger sons of Jacob. And he is, at this point in the story, he's a young man and he has a dream. He's already Jacob's favorite. Now, Jacob is the one that had the 12 sons, which would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph has a dream one day, and that's what chapter 37 is about. He tells it to his brothers, and then in verse 9, 
he dreamed yet another dream, told it his brethren, and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me, or they worshiped, they bowed down to me. So this is his, this young boy, this is his dream. He sees the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars. Why eleven and not twelve? Because he's the twelfth. And the vision is that his brothers someday are going to come down and they're going to bow down to him. But I want you to see his father's reaction in the next verse. He told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? See, Jacob interprets the dream, doesn't he? Jacob said, you mean me and your mom and your brothers, we're going to come bow down? He didn't even have to be told what the interpretation. He knew it. When he heard sun, moon, eleven stars, he put two and two together. He understands that that image is him as the sun, the twelve stars, his children, one of them being worshipped by the other eleven. Now we know about Jacob in his life. Remember he wrestles with the angel one night? The next day he's going to meet his brother who has vowed to kill him and he he wants God to bless him. So Jacob makes up his mind he will not let go. He is wrestling with the angel of the Lord. It's an amazing story. And after that event, because Jacob held on and he wouldn't give up, what does the Bible say God did with Jacob? He changed his name to Israel. It's from that moment. It was Jacob's life where the nation of Israel gets their name, Israel. So do you see now in Revelation 12, where John saw an image of a woman. She had the sun, the moon that she was clothed with. She had 12 stars wrapped around her. Can you see, explained by other places in the Bible, that has to be the nation of Israel. She's the woman... And what's the rest of Revelation 12? That woman is, she's pregnant. And that's the whole story of the Old Testament. She was always, I mean, as a nation, is there ever a time when some portion of the ladies are not pregnant? And Satan, he doesn't know which one. He has to be ready at all times. That's why Cain and Abel, he's trying to kill them. That's why when The Egyptians have them in Egypt. They start killing and drowning the boys. That's why when they leave Egypt and Pharaoh is going to push them into the sea, hey, this is my chance. I can get rid of all of them. He's trying to kill off the seed that God promised would come out of that woman. See, at first the woman is Eve. Everybody, all life comes from Eve. That's what her name means. But once she starts having kids the name of that woman takes on just a little different identity, a little more specific identity. Israel. See, when you get to the end of the book in Revelation, this is, it's going back to describe all this. This woman clothed 12 stars, the sun and the moon, it comes right from Joseph's story, it's Israel. She has this child that she is supposed to give birth to. And in Revelation 12, what's that dragon doing? It's like a a wolf circling that elk. 
He's waiting for that child to be born. I mean, if he can, he'll kill the woman while she's pregnant. There's all kinds of events where that is shown. But if he can't, as soon as that helpless child is born, kill it. This is true all the way. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. That's right. Our nice, wonderful, compassionate Herod. Matthew chapter 2. When Jesus was born, and God warns his father, his earthly father Joseph, that you need to get out of here. Okay, Mary and Joseph are in Israel. And God warns Joseph in a dream that says, Herod's going to try to kill him. Take Mary and the child and get out of here. So they leave quietly. They don't put up billboards. There's no sign in the yard. They're just gone. Herod wakes up and realizes that the wise men he sent to go find the child and bring back word to him, that they've also skedaddled. They left town. You know why? Because God talked to them in a dream and said, don't go back and tell Herod. And Herod gets angry. Verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath. Remember that phrase. Herod was exceeding wrath. There's an image there. And he sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem. All the children that were in Bethlehem. And in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Once again, this is the dragon, this is Satan's attempt to try to destroy the man-child that was supposed to be born of that woman. The attempt is all through the scriptures. Satan's not really good at his job. Doesn't mean he doesn't try hard. It causes a lot of havoc. But he ends up killing every kid except the one that he wants. That's the definition of failure. He kills every single kid out of however many there are, hundreds, thousands, tens, thousands, who knows. He kills everyone except the only one that he really wants. You see why God just drives the screws into that clown? You cut everybody, and you know that happens a lot in the Old Testament. There were times when all of the house of David, the lineage, the whole family, they were going to be killed off. But some servant went and grabbed one child and hid him. And the enemy thought, we got him. We got him. Except this kid was raised in secret. And he would go on to raise up seed in this lineage. It's all throughout the Bible. And nowhere, nowhere in it does the Old Testament stop and put a comma and say, this is the dragon's attempt to kill the woman. It doesn't say that. But, anytime you just stop and you step back and you start thinking about everything that's taking place from Genesis 1 all the way through, it, it, it keeps recurring. He keeps trying to kill everybody. He's not trying to kill Russians, Ethiopians, Brazilians, Canadians. He's always trying to kill this one group of people. Now this time you might be thinking, well, he messed up and he didn't get Jesus. So he would probably just leave them alone. 
Surely he's had enough and he realizes he missed his, his opportunity and it's over. And now there are no more plans that he has, no more enmity against Israel. Let's go back to Revelation 12. Now keep in mind, nothing of what we're talking about means that Israel, and we've already mentioned this, that none of this means that Israel does everything right. We're not saying that at all. We are trying to point out that God used that tiny group of people almost just to show the world that I can do this even using the smallest group. Maybe even the most disobedient group, I can still get my plans into the earth. Now, uh, let's see, where do we need to go here? Let's start back at verse 4 in Revelation 12. We need kind of the second half of verse 4 where it says, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, do you have a better picture of that after everything we've looked at from the Old Testament all the way up to Herod? The dragon trying to destroy the seed of that woman. Verse 5, She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. If you've ever read Psalm 2, talking about the Son of God, and it always uses that language. He will rule the earth with a rod of iron. When Gabriel comes to Mary and tells, him, tells her, you gotta, you're pregnant, and this is the Son of God you're carrying, and someday he's going to do such and such, and Gabriel goes all through the line, and he says, he's going to rule the earth with a rod of iron. That phrase denotes the Messiah. Jesus, nobody else. At the end of verse 5, And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. What's that talking about? The ascension. Jesus lived up into his 30s or longer. He was crucified, buried. He rose from the dead, appeared to the disciples for 40 days, and then he was taken to heaven in Acts chapters 1 and 2. He goes up to heaven. He's received out of their sight. He ascends to the Father caught up to his throne. That's what that verse is describing. So from here on you would think Satan's missed his opportunity and so he'll probably just leave Israel alone. But look at the language. Look at what takes place with this dragon and the woman. Let's go down to... uh, Let's go down to verse 11. This gives us a hint of one reason why he absolutely beyond all language to express it, hates Israel. In talking about the man-child that was born, it says that they, the people on earth, overcame him, overcame the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How is Satan defeated? See, he would kill every one of us if he could in here. If he had the opportunity, if he had the ability to take Jerry out if he wanted, he would be gone. He hates us. See, he can't. And us sitting here is some evidence of how much ability he has and doesn't have. But this tells us that we, the people on this earth, how do we overcome the dragon, Satan? This verse says, by the blood of the the lamb. I I thought he was a man-child. Does everybody understand that image, that language? That all throughout the Old Testament they sacrificed the lamb. They took the lamb's blood 
And that first, back in Egypt, they put it over the door of their house and the death angel came through and wherever blood was found, those people were protected. But wherever there wasn't blood, death came. And all through the Old Testament, they sacrificed lambs. That picture of the lamb's blood protecting us. John the Baptist called Jesus, there goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians says he's our Passover lamb. His blood applied to us does what? It kicks Satan in the ear every time. See, that's how he's destroyed. That's what he cannot overcome. And where did that lamb come from? It came from that nation of Israel. And here's the irony. As a whole nation, do they even acknowledge that? (laughs) No. Sure, there's Jewish converts, but as a nation, yet, today, they, as a nation, don't even agree with that phrase. Yet it's the truth. That's right. And the Bible does promise that they're going to come to that conclusion. It's going to be in a hot kitchen when they do. Let's see, verse, he knoweth he has a short time. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman, which did what? Brought forth the man-child. In Satan's mind, what does he see when he looks at Israel? He sees her offspring, even though they don't see it. You know, Israel doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the answer in this verse. And yet, Satan knows it. God knows it. Most, a good portion of the rest of the world kind of knows it, and yet right now they don't. That's that's the strange part of this whole story. But what I wanted you to get out of verse 13, it specifically tells you why he persecutes the woman. For no other reason. She brought forth that man-child. He couldn't kill her off throughout the Old Testament. And when she gave birth and brought that Messiah into the earth, whose blood would cleanse God's people, he can't overcome that. Verse 11 tells us, he cannot overcome the blood of the Lamb. And because of that, every time he hears that woman's name, every time he sees her image, he thinks, She gave birth to my problem. Verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman. It's the same image as Herod when he was going to kill all those babies. It said Herod was wroth and he sent his soldiers to kill every single child. Every one to make sure his bases were covered. And this says that the dragon was wroth with the woman. Isn't that strange? It doesn't say that he's mad at God. And we know he is. He's not a fan of God. We know that. The word goes out of its way to keep telling us who he's mad at and why. They don't even know why. That's amazing to me. They're being persecuted by the devil and they don't even know or they don't even identify it as it's because we gave birth to the Savior. They don't know it yet. The, The dragon was wroth with the woman and then he went to make war with what? 
the remnant of her seed. That, that should make what should, your mind should be going somewhere in the Bible right now. Genesis three, verse fifteen, where God tells the serpent that the seed of this woman, he's going to crush you someday. We've already read that the seed, the one that was needed, he's already gone and he's back to heaven. But what does this verse tell us about Satan's enmity, his anger toward the rest of the seed? He, he, he can't stand that they're still here. And it says, the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God, comma, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what's the number one thing that Satan hates is a Jewish person that's accepted Jesus. They're keeping his commandments, but they have the testimony of Jesus. Wow, that, that's what drives him berserk. Uncontrollable rage. And it says here that he goes after them. And this is what the rest of the book of Revelation is about. You know, it's one reason it gets pretty bad down here. The last seven years paints a tough, tough picture over there in the Middle East. And Israel, just like so many times where they were right before the Red Sea and they were going to be thrown into the sea and killed, just like when all of them were going to be drowned one by one as they were born in the Nile, just like when the book of Esther and they were all going to be killed in a night, just like in the time of Herod when he was going to kill all the children and make sure he got the Messiah, just like that, the world is going to go over there and surround Jerusalem and when it gets really bad, at the last moment, when they are persecuted and they're afflicted to the point where we have no other answers, they're going to look up and realize finally, Jesus, he really was who the Bible says he was. He is their Messiah. And God is going to save them one last time. You know, none of that means that they're just living proof of righteousness over there. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean this. This whole story that we've read, it hasn't ended yet. The idea of the dragon going after the woman, it's still going on. And the end is when all, he gets the whole world to come after him over there. It hasn't ended. I mean, for 2,000 years after Jesus, they, they were gone, they were scattered throughout the earth, there wasn't even an Israel. Now they're, they're brought back to fulfill some of this prophecy. It's absolutely remarkable how this was written 2,000 years ago and it describes the woman versus the dragon and the climax is almost here. That woman is back over there. And Satan, he will gather as many people as he can with as many weapons fired aimed at them for one last attempt an amazing story. Father, we pray that the things we've heard would take root into us, and we pray, Lord, that we would all be conformed to the image of your Son. We thank you, Father, for Pastor and for Tiff, and we pray that they would live under an open heaven, Lord. Keep, guard them, protect them with all diligence in Jesus' name. Amen.